you have 16 year olds who can sell your tarmac in Swedish, they can do it in Polish, Italian, French, German, whatever. No woman had ever masterminded such a, such a crime before. You know, I, I don't know if there is forgiveness for people like me for the things I've done. So they stripped the blanket off me and threw the water and I screamed like Ned Flanders out of The Simpsons. <laughs> Despite all the, you know, I'm not going to scream. And the pain was unbelievable. So we did it. We got through our first year on Crime World and even managed to bag an award for Podcast of the Year along the way. The first 12 months of our podcast dedicated to stories about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld have been very exciting and very busy. So over the coming weeks, we'll be reposting a selection of our favourite episodes that some of our listeners may have missed. Crime World is a treasure trove of stories from all over the world. I've gone far and wide to find the experts in their field so we can get a real insight into the stories we are discussing. When it comes to the Mexican drug cartels, there's nobody more knowledgeable than journalist Johan Grillo, who's the author of Gangster Warlords, El Narco and Blood Gun Money. Johan is British but based in Mexico City for more than 20 years and he's seen a lot in two decades, as Mexico has descended into a true narco state. So there was this guy, Fresa, who was a guy I, I knew. I mean, I met him a few times and, and hung out with him, went to nightclubs with him in, in Honduras. Before I finally got his story out, and, and it turned out he'd been, you know, uh, a serial murderer. I mean, he was a contract hitman and he'd butchered a family when he was a kid and, and he'd done some pretty horrific things. I mean, he, you know, he described to me when they have contracts and they would specifically want the person to be decapitated. That would be part of the contract. We want to, we want to have that person suffering. We want, to, we want you to video the guy being decapitated. And he would describe how it was done, you know, how the person would be like, suddenly their face, what their face would be like when they realised it was going to happen, um, how they would react, kind of physically, how their body would move, how when even when the life went out of them, you'd see them kind of body twitching for, for, for a second, like... That was, there was still that kind of nerves moving around. So you kind of describe this stuff, and it was and it was chilling, and it was chilling. I remember the cab we were filming that on video. The cameraman was saying he was physically feeling sick as he was describing this stuff, and it was hard to to put that against the same guy I'd been to a nightclub with, and we'd been you know drinking a bucket of beer, um, and he was quite a kind of nice guy. I realized, oh god, you know, this is the guy I was hanging out with. Uh, but then that was a, the the uh, the last time I saw him was in 2017. And then in, in late 2018, I got a phone call from from a journalist friend who introduced me, who grew up basically with this guy, knew him from growing up. He said he'd been murdered. Fresser himself had been murdered. Um, and one of the kind of sad things about that is he grew up abandoned. He had two children. Wanted Part of it was kind of this idea, I want to have, you know, give them this kind of middle-class lifestyle, which he was achieving through really horrific stuff he was doing. Then they ended up being orphans with a murdered dad. But I talked to him about guilt and about churches and religion and stuff, and he was like, a thing he said, um, you know, I, I don't know if there is forgiveness for people like me for the things I've done. So you're kind of feeling that feeling of being damned, um, of damnation, and it kind of was kind of getting into that kind of religious idea of, of how people can kind of process that I find interesting. Saskia Bellman works at De Telegraph in Amsterdam, a sister newspaper of the Sunday World, 
where she covers all the big crime stories and court cases related to organised crime. Like Yoan, she too has seen changes over her lengthy career and she's a regular contributor to Crime World about the rise of narco-terrorism in Europe and the ongoing investigations into members of the so-called super cartel. I mean, a lawyer getting killed in the Netherlands, uh, it had never happened before. And it um, dawned on everybody that this was really, really uh, getting serious, that uh, this organization uh, didn't, uh, wasn't afraid of killing family members uh, of people they, uh, they targeted. From those pretty good privacy phone uh, chats, they, um, they realized that even children were in danger, um, they uh, found chats in which uh, those criminals uh, talked to each other about everyone has to go to sleep, which means everyone has to be killed, even dogs, even kids. They didn't really mind um, who got killed as long as everybody that, that could be a possible threat to their drugs organization, um, everyone should, ha- should be killed. I think it's mainly um, the murder of Dirk Wiersen, the, the lawyer of Nebel Bay, that changed um, everything. Uh, from that moment on, judges in Holland were anonymous, the ones that treated those, that, that dealt with those cases. Um, prosecutors had to stay anonymous. They got, uh, they were guarded. Um, and it's not just uh, prosecutors, lawyers, judges that were being threatened, but also journalists. Um, our uh, office was attacked uh, of the Telegraph in Amsterdam. Uh, there was a car uh, that uh, rammed uh, the front and um, uh, it was put on fire. It caused an enormous damage, no casualties, but in, in, it caused enormous damage. There was uh, an office of, um, of um, a magazine, Panorama, that used to um, that write a lot about Tashi's organization as well, that was being attacked with a rocket launcher. So they were attacks that really scared um, people in the, that were dealing with those criminal organizations. And they realized that these guys um, were prepared to do anything to protect their drug trade. Our own Eamon Dillon, Niall Donald and Ken Foy of the Sunday World are regular guests and Eamon knows lots about globetrotting Irish gangs who've made their name on the international stage, including, of course, the infamous Rathkeel Rovers. Yes, well, I suppose Rathkeel would have been one time, you know, it it would have been kind of a, you know, a market town, like there's still a big cattle mart there and so it would have been quite wealthy and I suppose as a lot of those market towns over the years throughout the Irish Midlands and, you know, in, in the West, they've declined and declined. And I suppose the, the property would have been relatively cheap. And what, what happened then is that a number of the, the, the kind of the, the traveller traders in the travelling community, you know, bought up land and they bought up houses there uh, to the point now where, you know, they make up about half the population of 3,000 or so people during the year. And then, you know, at Christmas time, you know, members of the clans, all gather, they come back from wherever they are in the world and they can treble the population of, of the of the village. And as you, like there's some there's some huge houses that have been built there, you know, stone clad or nate iron gates. You go down at Christmas, um some of the years in the past, you, you know, you're talking about, you know, some of the, the high end Mercedes worth two hundred thousand. I think the first time uh, uh, the first time I saw a Porsche Panama in Ireland was in Rathkeel 
on at, at Christmas. Um, funnily enough, that that same car it was so distinctive. I noticed it then on a French television report the following Easter, when there was a large invasion of uh, travelers unexpectedly in I think uh, Lourdes it was. But it, which again goes to show how, how these guys get around. But I mean, it, it is a sight to behold. I mean, to the uninitiated, you're kind of you're just wondering, you know, you know, where does it all come from? And I mean. You, you know, they, they they put a lot of money into the houses um, and there is a lot of money sloshing around. Uh, and, and at that time, it would have been the guys, would have, the bulk of the money would have come from the tarmacking work that these crews were doing. And again, that was right across Europe. And again, like if, if you use corporate speak, I mean, these guys have a developed, uh, you know, a business model that is culturally blind. I mean, you have 16-year-olds who can sell you tarmac in Swedish. They can do it in Polish, Italian, French, German, whatever. I'm sure they can do it in Croatian and Slovenian if they had to. Like, they figure it out. They're, they're, um, they're amazingly resourceful in that regard. And, of course, because they don't play by the rules and avoid taxes and avoid the authorities, you know, it's a, it's a fairly lean economic model to operate on. We covered the stories behind famous heists with art detectives Anthony Amore and Chris Marinello. In one interview, Anthony told me about the Irish heiress Rose Dugdale, who used her privileged education to help her pick out the best loot from the walls of Rusborough House. She was what people now would refer to as the one percent. You know, in in interviews later in her life, she tries to downplay that a bit, but there's no question she was an aristocrat, that she was born into extreme wealth. So she runs out of money because of all the spending. And she turns to, you said it very well, she turns exactly to the people who had always provided for her, her family. And one evening they go and they rob Yardy Farm. Uh, that's where she knew she could find riches. And it was an art heist. She stole um, paintings and antiques. Interestingly, she, she was not a great criminal, especially at that time, because one of the clues, there were a few clues that led to her. Number one, her bedroom was not touched in the heist. Number two, this beautiful antique gift she left for her mother was the one thing left behind that wasn't stolen. And number three, the dogs on the farm were very fond of her and none of them barked during the heist. So um, the the authorities are onto her quickly. But even at that point, if she never did another thing, a major art heist like that would have made her a singular individual in the annals of art crime because no woman had ever masterminded such such a crime before. We told the unbelievable tales of con artists Will Jordan and Mara Smith. Looking back, uh, this is another way she got deep into my life very quickly. And that's another red flag of a con. They have to get into your life quickly. Because the longer you have, the more likely you are to uncover some lie, which leads to another lie, which leads to another lie. So another technique she used, when I confided in her that I'm gay and you know my family, part of my family had disowned me back in 2013, she told me, well, my family disowned me too. And, you know, they're, they're trying to get me disinherited. Uh, look at this text my cousin Finton sent me. And she'd show me the text on her phone from Finton. It said, Finton, you know, you effing C word, you know, see you next Tuesday. Um, and just expletive laden, hateful texts about she'll never get a, a farthing or, you know, which is I had to Google uh, uh, money, like a coin or something over there. Uh, a farthing. A um, and I just, I, I felt for her immediately. You know, we were two discarded souls here in Los Angeles whose families don't want them. And that bonded me so close, so quickly to her. 
And that was her plan. I fell, I fell for it. And we've profiled the most notorious gangland hitmen, mob bosses and killers. There's a huge amount of concern, I guess, both among Gardaí and in the criminal underworld and about what's exactly going to happen with uh, Brian Rattigan. Uh, he's been locked up since 2003. Uh, he'd be one of Ireland's most famous, I suppose, most one of Ireland's most notorious criminals. He would have come to the attention of Gardaí from a very early age as a juvenile. And he would, you know, even at that stage, he, was, he would be known as to be an extremely violent young man. Basically, he, he was part of a, a, a large enough gang of young fellas from the south inner city and the crumbling driven areas of the capital um, that would have started out as joyriders, you know, minor troublemakers. And they graduated then to being, as you say, you know, being a street dealer for the likes of John Gilligan, graduated to being a local hard man with a reputation for violence, um, particularly in relation to people who who owed um, who owed him money for drugs, etc. Um, but but this gang of um, teenagers, essentially, um, in the I suppose the Celtic Tiger cocaine boom, um, ended up um, making you know they were only in their they're late teens, but they were ended up making a huge amount of money from the uh, from the drugs trade. And throughout the year, we followed the fall of the Kinahan cartel and the sensational arrest of Jerry the Monk Hutch. It's a complicated subject, I suppose, the, the nature of, you know, the interaction between celebrity and criminals, I suppose. And as you say, you know, the Regency Hotel shooting left whatever way you want to look at it, left... Um, kids without a father has a devastating impact on a not just on on an immediate family but a wider extended group of people and people that love their their loved ones and you know no matter what that that is there but you do see of course that that the monk you know um like our irish culture has always had a a, a thing a, a connection with outsiders i suppose and jerry hutch um managed to become a type of celebrity. I mean, you, I said it before, but you can't forget that this, he was voted, I think it was 70th in, um, in a, one magazine's top 100 uh, sexiest men of Ireland. So Jerry Hutch had, um, rightly or wrongly, he became, he became viewed as this kind of outside figure, this outsider. And, you know, I mean, obviously the Sunday world and yourself and myself will always be criticizing, we're glamorizing these people and, and, you know, maybe that's fair, maybe it's unfair, but certainly these people, um, you know, the, these criminals, they became um, kind of celebrities. And Jerry Hutch was the one, the, the most celebrity of, of, of these, these uh, criminals. So it is, an in, it is an interesting thing to see um, that, you know, that maybe that there was a, uh, you know, that like, like people tracking a celebrity coming into the country, there was a bit of that. Um, but, but, you know, there is the other side to these things that since, since the dawn of time, like if you look at, say, in the Wild West, you had Billy the Kid and you had in, in the 1920s, you had all these American figures and, you know, they don't, all these films. So gangland figures have taken on that role of being outsiders in our culture and that people relate to them as that. But there were three episodes that really caught the judges' ears at the National Newspaper Industry's 2021 Journalism Awards. 
and which landed Crime World the prestigious gong as Ireland's best podcast. In episode 28, Jake McShakish told us the extraordinary story of his time locked up on the H-blocks with IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands. In an incredibly honest interview, Jake brought us along the Falls Road to the memorials to his Republican friends who gave their lives for their cause. Forty years after the dreadful events, he was able to make some sense of what happened and explain why young men starved themselves to death so future generations could live in peace. I can still name every screw who was involved in torturing me. I can still name every RUC man, although I never have publicly. I've never named any of them. Um, I don't think it's right to personalise it. They... um, like me and like everybody else, go to bed with their own thoughts. So during the hate blocks and the hunger strikes, I you would have moments where you would see the humanity even in your tortures. Uh, I remember when we got scalded, they decided to um, scald us in 1979. They began the, the first door and the, the wing opened and you heard all this clattering and then a scream and... The, the screws were shouting, stay still, stay still. And a guy called Jerry Dowdall. And then there was this splash. And Dowdall screamed at the top of his lungs, it's scalding, the water's boiling. And then they just opened door after door, scalding people. And threw it at you? Threw buckets of water. So they came to my cell and they opened it. And one of them said, uh, you're going to have to wait your turn. We're keeping you to the end. You're the man giving the orders in here. And we're going to have a special treat for you. So... They, they worked their way around the whole wing. And that, that's actually worse than the um, ordeal that you go through, listening to men screaming, listening to men suffering. It's just, you're impotent, you can't do anything. So the three screws, they landed down at the door. One of them opened it and he says, uh, our friend's way up to boil up some water freshly for you. We want you scalded. So all the time I've been second myself up saying, I'm not going to react. I'm not going to let them see um, that... They've succeeded in, in, in breaking me. So I pulled the blanket tight around myself and stood in the middle of the cell. And they opened the door, and one of the screws stepped forward and says, I want this bastard scalded right to strip him. So they stripped the blanket off me and threw the water, and I screamed like Ned Flanders out of the Simpsons. <laughs> Despite all the, you know, I'm not going to scream. It, the pain was unbelievable, you know, and I just stood there. And I could physically feel the blisters rising on my back and my neck and my thighs. The door closed, they went away, and the next thing a screw came back, one of the ones who had done the scalding, and he opened the door and he threw a tube of germline on the floor, uh, antiseptic cream, and he handed me um, Pleur's Navy cut cigarettes, and he said, put that on you and have yourself a wee smoke. You deserve it after what you've been through. And I, I just stood for a while going... Is he schizophrenic or, you know, and then I just went, no, that's him protecting his own humanity. He's just done something that he can't square and to um, retrieve his humanity, he's, he's given me cigarettes in Germany. So he could sleep that night, presumably. So he could sleep. The human body seems to be able to take quite a lot. It does. Uh, I learned that in the H-blocks that you wake up freezing, cold, you're on a, a, a sponge which is soaked with urine, 
you have a couple of blankets over you, you, you sweep the maggots out of your bed, out of your hair, and you get up and read your Bible and go for a walk. That's your reality. You look at women survivors of, of domestic violence, they're able to go through that. You know, they're able to function as mothers, they're able to function as human beings, and yet they're under a tyranny from a brute, and yet they can they can manage it. And uh, so humanity's very resilient, the human spirit's very resilient, and it needs some central belief uh, to sustain you. I think that mothers suffering domestic violence must sustain themselves by the need to protect their children. Prisoners, um, political prisoners, sustain themselves with their beliefs and ideals. So yeah, the human spirit's amazing. The EncroChat phone hack was the police operation that rocked the underworld and led to thousands of arrests, as well as record-breaking seizures of drugs, weapons, laboratories and even a torture chamber. In episode 25, we took a look at the massive international investigation and detailed exactly how the hack happened, despite promises that the phone network was bulletproof. We also posed the big question. Why has Ireland had nothing to show from the biggest blow against organised crime this century? We have an almost full picture of who is involved. And I remember speaking to one source who said, you know, Northern Ireland is such a divided society. Everything comes down to orange and green, to loyalist and republican, except when it comes to money. Because when we were looking through those anchor chat when it came to money, those boys put all their differences aside and they were quite happy to work with each other when it came to that. And they were able to see those connections, which otherwise in the public facing them, they would be pretending that those people were sworn enemies. But privately, they were secretly negotiating and doing deals so what has happened on home turf? Why haven't Irish criminals been rounded up in the same way as their Northern Irish, British and European counterparts? After all, we know they use the same phone systems. We know that there's a cross-border trade in guns. We know there's a cross-border trade in drugs. We know that, you know, the PSNI, when questioned, have said that they believe that almost all the drugs in Northern Ireland, whether being sold by loyalists, whether being sold by other paramilitary groups, whether being sold by criminal gangs, they all originate from one place eventually. They all come down to one organised crime network, one family organised crime network. So we know that that cross-border trade exists. And surely any anchor chat arrests would have had to be done on a cross-border basis. When he was caught in Dublin in April 2017, the international hitman, Imre Arrakis, hired by the Kinahan Mafia to kill James Mago Gately, had one of the phones on him. At that point, the Guardi were so used to finding the devices on gang members that they knew exactly how they would delete. Garda Sean O'Neill that morning thought on his feet when he used his own phone to photograph a thread of messages on Arrakis's device before it disappeared into the ether. It was a key piece of evidence used to convict him of the plot to kill Gately. Later, when another hit team attempted to kill the monk's brother Patsy Hutch during a planned daylight ambush, its leader, Patrick Curtis, took pictures of the disappearing messages on his own phone in case he'd forget them. 
Two phones were seized from his home, showing how he was receiving orders from an unidentified entity known as Lord Knows and then directing his team on how to kill. By 2019, senior guardee working at the forefront of organised crime policing here had found that encrypted mobile phones had become such a huge problem that they were seeking new powers to access them. Such was the scale of the problem that even lowly street soldiers were carrying both an ordinary phone and an encrypted one. And you're not taken seriously if you don't have a BGP device. The Garda Press Office is the communication centre between the force and the media. It's where journalists go to get questions officially answered. I asked if I could speak to a senior member of Garda management about EncroChat, but nobody was made available and it was clear that nobody would be. So I sent a list of questions which I hoped would throw some light on why the kind of operations seen in other countries have not taken place here. I asked... Why are there no arrests credited to the EncroChat hack in Ireland? Why are there no seizures of guns, drugs or money linked to the EncroChat hack in Ireland? Can Angarda Siakona provide me with any details on any operations which resulted from information provided through Europol and derived from the hack? Did the EncroChat information go directly to the Crime and Security Division of Angarda Siakona? Was the information passed on to the relevant units involved in fighting serious organised crime in Ireland? Or was it withheld? The case of missing Sandra Collins has haunted a small town in County Mayo for 20 years. We went west in episode 37 to talk to Sandra's brother Patrick and sister Bridie about their ongoing search for answers in the tragic case. Sandra Collins... Fortish Cross Malina, who went missing on December the 4th, 2000, in Killala. A missing sister, a missing daughter, all together but one. We travel, we search, we pray and cry. No answers, no leads, no reasons why. Years have passed, forever we remember the times we shared before that December. Forever loved and missed by her loving family, always Sandra. Always and forever. My name is Patrick Collins and I'm Sandra Collins' brother. My name is Bridie Conway and I'm Sandra Collins' sister. Uh, We're in Killala in County Mayo, um, a small seaside village on the North Atlantic coast. So, small, tiny, picturesque village with approximately 500 people. I'm really selling it, haven't I? <laughs> There's no good here days in the West. No. <laughs> no, it's so exposed here, isn't it? It's yeah. beautiful. It's nice here. It's very picturesque, but it's very... Yeah. And this is June. Imagine it in December. I can just... I mean, it was an awful night, wasn't it, as well? Oh, yeah. it was, yeah. It yeah. was a real cold, rough, rough winter's About night. About ten times worse than this time, yeah. you know. Yeah, and pelting rain and... The wind was howling. It's howling now and it's a summer's day. Like, how did she live down here? Do you know that kind of way? How mm. could she for, like, do you know, to pass the time?
As we pull the curtain on the first year of Crime World, we'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in and for the fabulous feedback we get on email, nicolatalent at sundayworld.com, and in the reviews you leave online. Particular thanks to anyone who's shared an episode with a friend. That makes a huge difference. We're already looking forward to next year and exploring lots more stories in the months to come. We've got big plans and we hope you'll stay with us as we bring you the real people and the real stories behind the grisly headlines. See you in 2022.